bring glory to your great name. We pray that as I read your scripture, as I preach upon it, that uh, you would take the weakness of human flesh, the weakness of preaching, and Father, that the power of your grace would be at work in each of us. We thank you for your promise that you're the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies. We thank you for your promise that this is the will of God, even your sanctification. We lay claim to those promises, O God. And we thank you and we believe you will be glorified uh, through our sanctification. And so we uh, pray that you would uh, set apart this time as we continue to worship in our responses to your word and that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26, and we've gotten up to verse 19. This is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Amen. You may be seated. This past uh, April 27, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public uh, Life uh, produced the results of a study they'd been working on for quite some time. It was titled, Changes in Religious Affiliation in the U.S., And the very next day, and for weeks after that, uh, various magazines were publishing articles on consumer Christianity and how to pick a church, even Wall Street Journal. Uh, There was all kinds of Christianity Today, Time Magazine, a number of magazines. For example, the April 28 issue of Time Magazine had an article called Church Shopping, and it concluded that people really don't pick churches because of theology, but for reasons like, quote, location or children's activities or the quality of preaching or music or potluck offerings. And then it went on to say the concept of church shopping itself is uniquely American. Now, there are a number of other magazines that agreed with that assessment. that This really seems to be an all-American pastime. Uh, Slate uh, published an article titled The Church Search. Why American churchgoers like to shop around. Now, many of these articles were saying, this is a good thing. This is a positive thing. It makes uh, churches compete and it improves the quality of churches. This is what the free market's all about, right? But there were other articles that were lamenting the fact that the ways they were competing was really in areas that trivialized the faith because they were making things like uh, church parking, nurseries, greeters, focus groups, Uh, buildings, location, coffee, uh, conveniences, other comfort issues, the driving consideration in picking a church. So it was a very fascinating number of articles that I read through. And after reading them, I uh, thought I'd title this sermon, uh, Church Shopping, A Consumer's Guide. 
But then I thought, no, that's a little bit too man-centered. <laughs> that's really not what Paul was uh, about here. He's not trying to show, you know, how do you attract members to your church? He's all about uh, glorifying the Lord and having a faithful ministry. And so I've titled it, Marks of a Faithful Ministry. And I think this passage boils down into five short uh, verses, the essence of what it means to be a faithful ministry that glorifies the Lord. Now, there are other things that we could add in here, like uh, praying, but I think they're implied uh, in uh, one of these 12 uh, points. And I think Paul is a beautiful, beautiful role model for, uh, for elders. And uppermost in Paul's mind is not, how can I please as many people as possible? Uppermost in his mind is, how can I be totally, totally obedient to the call that God has upon my life? In fact, that's where he starts in verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And so this passage is all about faithfulness to God, obedience to God. Uh, what should we aspire to be like as a church? And what should church members expect of a church? You're never going to find a perfect church, but I think this is a model that uh, churches and ministers should seek to aspire to be like. And men... Uh, you're the pastor of your homes. Uh, you can apply some of these things to your own ministry and your own uh, families. But at least let's pray that our church would continue to grow in all 12 marks. Okay, first point. First thing that we should want to know is if a ministry has truly been called by God or not. Let me read verse 19 again. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And the vision that he's referring to is the call of God upon his life that we looked at uh, last uh, week. This ministry was not something that uh, Paul jumped into on his own initiative. He wasn't in it for money or prestige or uh, for, for co contacts that he was trying to make. God had called him to this. And so you don't just come along one day and say, you know, that's a pretty cool uh, career that Paul has. I think I'm going to be an apostle too. No, God has to call you to that. And it's the same with churches. You don't just decide one day, hey, I'm going to start a church. No, it has to have God's call upon it. Of course, we've got to allow the Scriptures to test that calling. And uh, there are, in the Bible, false prophets who were trying to prophesy when God had not called them. And so the Bible lays out tests. How do you tell a false prophet from a, a good one? Paul talks about false apostles. They claimed that they were called by God to be apostles, and Paul says they were false. And here is the test by which you can tell which one is which. There are preachers who preach when they were not sent by God. And so we need to look to the Scriptures to examine that. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. I don't care how cold a woman may feel that she is by God to be a pastor. I will say that is not a call from God because the Scripture is quite clear in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus uh, chapter 1, that uh, uh, females are not allowed to be pastors. Now, she might have a mega church. She might have a huge following. She might even be doing a lot of good. She might be converting people and seeing people being sanctified uh, in, in, in her church. And yet I can still dogmatically say this is a call from man. This is not a call from God. Again, it's because of 1 Timothy 3 Titus 1 and other passages. In fact, Paul prefaces uh, a whole bunch of qualifications of what constitutes a call from God with these words. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. 
Now, man's call might argue with God on that point. But it's not going to be uh, a ministry that is faithful to God on at least that, that one point there. Now, God wrote First and Second Timothy, He wrote Titus, to give a whole bunch of uh, new, uh, tests by which we can see the calling of the Lord upon individuals, upon ministries. And when you evaluate the ministries that are out there in America, I think you have to come to the sad conclusion that there is a lot going on in the name of ministry in America that does not flow from the calling of God. It calls from, it flows from the calling maybe of ego or of other expectations from men, uh, but uh, not from God. Now, can God use ministries like that? And I say, absolutely, yes. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He even used Balaam's donkey, you know, to accomplish ministry purposes in a person's life. But uh, all ministries should strive to keep all 12 points. And I believe this is a fundamental one because if you lack the calling of God, you're going to lack the Spirit's power in your calling. Now, if you're a father... I can guarantee you, you are called by God to be a pastor of your family. And so you can't leave that ministry. You can't uh, uh, just abandon it because you say, I don't have the giftings. No, you are called by God and He will empower you in what uh, He has called you to. But that does lead to point number two. A second mark of a faithful ministry is that ministry must be obedient to the call. It's not enough to be called by God and then go about and do your own thing. Build your own kingdom. Uh, When Paul says here, I was not disobedient to the heavenly calling, he implied that that could have been a constant temptation. He could have very easily drifted away from God's vision for his life. You see, there are Jonahs who run away from God's calling, aren't there? And there are ministries that run away from God's calling. I had a very good friend, and I feel comfortable sharing this with you because uh, none of you know this person but I had a very good friend who had a church ministry for a number of years that I think was a marvelous model of ministry. Uh, I think the power of God was in his life. They saturated what they did in prayer. Uh, Prayer was a major part. Discipleship, you saw holiness emerging in uh, the people's lives. I saw God's blessing written all over that, and it was growing, but it was not growing as fast as the elders would have wanted and so what they did is they insisted that everybody get trained at a mega church on church growth principles. And using these principles, they did grow to be a rather uh, great church. But to this day, I just feel sad. In fact, I feel sick about that ministry because what has happened is they no longer have prayer at the heart of their ministry. You don't see holiness. In fact, you see all kinds of of tragedies going on uh, in their midst. Uh, You don't see the blessing of God upon that unless just numbers alone is uh, what you're measuring that by. It was a clear-cut case of abandoning God's vision and adopting man's vision. And while this is not a sermon about dads and moms, I think we need to ask this about our own callings. Uh, The words that Paul gives here, I was not disobedient to the heavenly calling are words that we need to be able to say as moms and dads. It doesn't matter how tough things get. We need to be able to say that. Uh, I'm not disobedient to that. Now, the third mark of a faithful church ministry is that it is committed to having a kingdom message. Uh, The Greek word for declared uh, there in verse 20 is a special word for a message that a king gives or an envoy of a king gives to another kingdom And even though it involves individual ramifications, 
uh, it's clearly an official call for all competitive kingdom to submit to King Jesus. Let me define the word. Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says, it is used for proclamations of kings, reports of envoys, with much the same range of meaning as onongelo, but apongelo tends to be more official. Another dictionary says of these two words, they come from public life, the gains and government. This suggests already that the gospel proclaims the rule of God. And so what's going on here is that this is a kingdom directive that Paul was bringing to the people. He's representing God. In fact, that's what apostle means. It's, a God, it's somebody who is officially representing uh, the king, Jesus, to, uh, to the world. And he speaks in the name of that king. And it's interesting, the way he words this in verse 20, um, even though he starts in Damascus, because that's where he was converted, uh, it makes it clear that he is intentionally saying, I am fulfilling the Great Commission. Uh, he's uh, bringing individual message to individual people because God's kingdom has to come. His will has to be done in our own lives more and more. But this has uh, official ramifications as well. And uh, Gentiles could just be a contrast with Jews, but it's the same word that's used in the Great Commission, ethne. It's uh, nations uh, that he is speaking to. And this speech clearly is being given to the nation of Israel. So those two concepts, the, the word for proclaim and this Great Commission concept, to me, shows this is a kingdom directive that Paul was engaged in. Now, I don't have time to dig into this point very much, but let me just give you a few so what's uh, that would flow from that. First of all, it means that a faithful ministry must be about God's rule in our lives. It's not just about a ticket to heaven. Uh, it is His rule right now. And any ministry that denies the Lordship of Jesus Christ or makes it an option is not being faithful to the Lord in terms of God's call for ministries. It means, secondly, that Paul's message is not just about grace, it's also about law. Because if you have no law, you have no kingdom. Third, it means that we don't have to wait for the second coming for God's power to back up the message that His messengers are bringing. If you've got the, a kingdom directive, you've got the king to back up that directive. Uh, for example, Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, when, there, when the kingdom comes, there's always the power of the kingdom to back up uh, the directive of that kingdom. And so the power of, the, uh, of casting out of demons was proof positive that the kingdom of God uh, had come. Uh, it prophesied in the Old Testament that there would be spiritual gifts that would be given to God's people. In other words, uh, when God brings His kingdom, His Spirit was going to anoint and empower not just special prophets and people, but He was going to anoint and empower all of the people of the kingdom in a special way. And so if you do not have the power of God's kingdom in your particular ministry within your family, and uh, if you are not resisting the demonic, and maybe you're not even aware that the demonic has influenced you, I'd encourage you to talk to me because this is not the way it should be. Every believer in the Gospels was uh, uh, given authority over all of the power of the enemy, which means you don't have to come to Phil Kaiser. Uh, you can resist the, de the demonic on your own. Um, one of the books that I highly, highly recommend that you purchase and start reading through is William Gurnall's book, uh, The Christian in Complete Armor. Now, 
I've plowed through the old English one, but there is a modern English version that's so simple to read. It's just great, great reading. It's in three volumes and uh, a very updated grammar and updated uh, English, uh, also published by Banner of Truth, William Gurnall, uh, the Christian in complete armor. And what he does in there is he gives you all kinds of ideas of how the kingdom resists the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, how the, God's power, uh, how, how by, by faith you can lay claim uh, to His kingdom power. While there are, kingdom, there are ministries that deny that we're even in the kingdom at all, they deny that uh, our message should be involved in uh, social issues. Now, they say in the future, after the second coming, yes, he's going to have lordship over every square inch of territory on planet Earth. But right now, we ought not to be bringing Jesus into politics, for example, or other social areas. What they're advocating is a political theory known as pluralism. And even some reform people argue for this. Well, here's, here, here's the point in terms of this passage. You could not have gotten a more public forum than what Paul was preaching into right here. And yet, if you look down at verse 29, he tries to convince Agrippa to be altogether such as I am, except for these chains. In other words, he wants Agrippa to be every bit as Christian in his public office as king as Paul was in his public office of apostle. Kingdom ministries, what are they all about? We've talked about various aspects of kingdom ministries in the past, but they're comprehensive. Uh, they're intended, as we saw a few weeks ago, to capture all seven leverage points of a society. Uh, they're future-oriented. Uh, they're concerned not just about eternity, but about the present. They're not pietistic, even though they long for more piety. And so Paul's ministry was a kingdom ministry. Now, the fourth mark of a faithful ministry is that it's willing to call people to repentance. Verse 20 goes on to say that they should repent. But who should repent? Well, everybody that he had been ministering to, individuals as well as kingdoms. Now, I'll tell you, this is, this is a controversial point. Uh, the word repentance is not very popular in uh, American uh, church circles today because it's, it, it doesn't seem to fit too well with self-esteem. It's too laden with guilt. It's too negative for the feel-good kind of religion that Americans want to have. And you can't market it very well. You try marketing a ministry of repentance. Okay, this is our ministry. We're going to market this uh, in Omaha. It's not going to get very far unless God brings revival. But see, that's the point. The only growth we want is a growth that God, by His Spirit, is producing. See, if I build the church, the gates of hell can prevail against it. But if Jesus is building this ministry, then it's guaranteed the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And that's the kind of ministry that I want us to be about. If we're going to have Jesus building the ministry and not us, we've got to start where Jesus did, and it was with repentance. In Mark 2.17, Jesus said that He came to earth to call sinners to repentance. Okay, that's how He characterized His ministry. Uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus, said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is an essential ingredient of a kingdom message. Jesus had exactly the same message, Matthew 4.17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here we see that one of the facets of Paul's message was a message of repentance. Fifty-eight times the word repentance occurs in the New Testament. Now, here is the encouraging part for me. This is the wonderful part. 
Repentance is constantly shown in the New Testament as being the doorway to blessing. And, of course, in the Old Testament, it's shown that way as well. Repentance is the doorway to blessing. Now, Satan is going to try to convince you that the opposite is true. You're going to be miserable. Your pride's going to be hurt. Everybody's going to think poorly of you if you repent. And he's trying to keep repentance out of your vocabulary because he knows if you continue to hold on to your sin, you give him legal ground where you cannot resist him. You don't have the power of the Spirit in your life. In fact, every time you try to resist the devil, all he has to do is look up to God and say, I don't have to leave, do I? He's given me legal ground. And God says, yep, you can continue to mess around in his life. Repentance is the doorway to the, the blessing of the Lord. Roy Hessian, who saw incredible revival in, in one area in Africa, said this, we want to be very simple in this matter of revival. Revival is just the life of the Lord Jesus poured into human hearts. So it's, it's not about uh, emotion. It's not about, uh, you know, it's not revivalism. It's the life of Jesus poured into human hearts. Jesus is always victorious, he says, in heaven there praising him all the time for his victory. Whatever may be our experience of failure and barrenness, he is never defeated. His power is boundless, and we on our part have only to get into a right relationship with Him, and we shall see His power being demonstrated in our hearts and lives and service, and His victorious life will fill us and overflow through us to others. And that is revival in its essence. If, however, we are to come into this right relationship with Him, the first thing we must learn is that our wills must be broken to His will. To be broken is the beginning of revival. It is painful, it is humiliating, but it is the only way. It is being not I, but Christ, and a C is a bent I. So anytime our lives don't line up with kingdom realities, he's calling us to repentance. Now you may butt your head against the wall of God's kingdom, but that wall is not going to give, it's your head that's going to give, and you're just going to be miserable. And so what he's saying is he wants your values and your vision, your ideals, your morals, all of the aspects of your life to conform to kingdom realities. That's what repentance is about. It's an about face, and it's saying, yes, I'm committed to what God wants in my life, and that's an essential mark of, of uh, ministry. If you want the power of Paul's ministry in your home, you've got to daily embrace the lowly path of repentance. Now, since repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin, where you have genuine repentance, you're always going to have faith. Okay, they, they always go together. There's always going to be a turning to God. Now, let me quickly contrast the difference between penance and repentance. Penance is beating up on yourself so that you can have God's favor. In a sense, it's kind of meriting God's forgiveness Whereas repentance is quite different. Repentance is a, a realization we can never earn God's favor. It is a casting away of self-effort and casting our sins at the cross of Christ and looking in faith to the Lord Jesus. So repentance always leads to faith. It's turning from idols to serve the living God. So here he goes on from repentance and he says to turn to God. That's faith. Hebrews 6 
And verse 1 says, Repentance and faith, they are the foundation stones upon which our Christian life has got to be, uh, got to be built. He speaks of the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, you can't even go on in your Christian life until you've mastered that. On a daily basis, you've got repentance and faith that you are walking in. Where repentance learns to get rid of self-trust, self-effort, self-esteem, anything else that is self-focused, what faith does is it's looking to God and it's learning how to write checks on the bank of heaven for anything that you need, for healing, for wisdom, for, uh, for power, for uh, holiness, sanctification. You're constantly writing checks on the, the bank uh, of heaven. Faith is the antithesis of legalism. Why? Because it's not looking to man's words, it's looking to God's word. Faith is the antithesis of powerlessness because it's looking to God's power, not looking to our own power. Now, the problem is there's counterfeits. And so Paul introduces an interesting little phrase here. And he says, and do works befitting repentance. Here's how some other translations render this. Prove their repentance by their deeds. Do works giving evidence of repentance. Performing deeds consistent with repentance. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. It really doesn't matter how you translate that term. What it's indicating is if you don't have any little measure of holiness in your life, your repentance is a bogus repentance. It is a counterfeit Repentance, And this is where we need to contrast repentance with one other counterfeit, and that is remorse. Some people have great remorse when they sin. That means, oh, I feel terrible. My emotions have kicked in. I feel terrible that I'm such a lousy, rotten sinner. But repentance does not just kick in the emotions. Repentance is the mind, the will, and the emotions all engaged uh, uh, against idolatry and then mind, will, and motions, and faith engaged toward God. Now, here is the point. If all of these kingdoms that Paul is bringing this kingdom directive to are truly repentant, they're going to submit to Jesus, they're going to serve Jesus, whether it's on an individual level, whether it's on a national level. Uh, Simon Kistemacher said, To be precise, repentance denotes that the whole person with heart, mind, and soul is turned around from sin to service, it marks a moral and religious orientation to a whole new way of life. He's saying there is no such thing as a Sunday go to meet in Christianity where you can be, you know, all religious on Sunday and uh, you do whatever you want on Monday through Saturday. He says that's a bogus, a bogus re repentance. Uh, he is saying that ministries that are designed to just make people comfortable in their rebellion are not being faithful to either God's law or to His grace. See, individuals, families, churches, and nations must have works that are consistent with repentance. Which automatically leads to the next point. Seventh mark of a faithful ministry is that it has antithesis. can't pronounce that word. Antithesis is a clear-cut delineation between the people of God and the world, between right and and wrong, between truth and error. There's not all of this gray fuzziness where you can't really tell the difference uh, be between uh, the two. 
Paul's kind of ministry was so different from his culture that he invited criticism and even persecution. Paul said, for these reasons, in other words, for the reasons of uh, these marks, because of the marks of a faithful ministry in my life, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. If he had had a ministry that really didn't look a whole lot different from the world, they would have just left him alone. They wouldn't have bothered him. But Paul was so insistent in calling every area of life into submission to King Jesus, they just could not ignore his ministry any longer. Nowadays, people would tend to shy away from ministries that receive a lot of flack, like Paul's. There's got to be something wrong with Paul. Uh, you know, if he's getting persecuted, how could so many people be wrong about Paul? You know, it's got to be something that is bad. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. He said, you're blessed. In John 15:19, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It is a mark against a ministry if it is consistently spoken well of by the world. Yeah, there's going to be some things that the world is going to like. But if there's a consistency there, there's something, there's something that's not quite going right. It is a mark against a ministry if it is never slandered. The best ministries that I know across America and in, in Africa have continually had smear campaigns brought against them. Satan hates what they are doing. He tries to do everything he can to bring them down. In fact, some of these guys have threats on their lives. Uh, you know, Peter Hammond has a number of times uh, had threats on his life. And you could look at people from other kinds of ministries even, Mark Driscoll and others. Now, I'm not saying we should invite persecution. First Peter forbids that. Uh, you shouldn't invite it. Uh, I, I, what I'm saying is we should have such an antithesis on what is right and wrong about the sin-sick world that we become marked ministries. And again, I'm not saying that uh, we're allowed to get bitter over all of the persecution that we receive. We shouldn't feel sorry for ourselves. In fact, we shouldn't even be focused on that because it's not persecution that's the mark. You know, sometimes you're persecuted, sometimes not. It's the antithesis that is the mark of a faithful ministry but we shouldn't shy away when persecution comes. Okay, the eighth mark of a faithful ministry is that it is empowered by God. Paul says, therefore, having obtained help from God. He didn't just have the right words. He had the right help. He had the right power to back up those words. In 1 Corinthians 2.4, he said, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So here's the question. Is God backing up your ministry with His power? If you don't see power in your life, it may be that there's blockages that need to be taken out of the way, things that have given Satan legal ground uh, to just keep you from the kind of joy and the kind of power and the kind of ministry God wants you to have. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, it says, for the kingdom of God is not in word only, but in power. Now, let's just think about that for a little bit. Is this ministry able to have joy in the midst of ruthless persecution? Is it able to be positive even when others are slandering the ministry? 
Is it able to declare a war of love on people who have been abusing you and uh, hurting you? See, one of the ways you can tell whether you have the empowerment of God in your ministry is to read through the Sermon on the Mount and make a, either a positive or a negative beside each statement as to whether that's actually been true of your life. Does the statement that Christ gave describe you? I think one of the reasons that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount was to just absolutely destroy self-righteousness and show them that without God's power, they could not accomplish even the most basic elements of the kingdom. See, the Pharisees thought they were pretty good. They thought they had it made. They were righteous, at least compared to other humans. They had it made pretty good. And what Jesus was doing is point after point in the Sermon on the Mount, he was showing that these guys were sinners in need of a Savior. He was taking away all self-righteousness. For example, Pharisees thought that they were pretty good, you know, in terms of love. They loved their wives. They loved their, their children. And Jesus exposes uh, the uh, powerlessness of their love by saying, okay, do you love your enemies? Are you able to bless those who curse you? He said, the kind of love you have, even pagans can have that. Pagans can love their wives, can love their children. But when you can love your enemy, when you can bless those who curse you, you give evidence of your sonship that God's grace and His power is working through you. And then he takes one step further and he said, by the way, even your love toward your wife and your children is not a divine love. And he shows that when he discusses divorce. He just blows them out of the water in his discussion of uh, divorce. So how do you gain a pure heart? How do you avoid godly ang ungodly anger? How do you avoid adultery in your heart? How do you love your wife when your wife does not reciprocate that love to you? How do you go the second mile when a Roman soldier compels you to go one mile? How do you fast and do other sacrificial things without feeling pride welling up and hoping other people are going to notice all of the things that you are doing? Okay, how do you give radical forgiveness? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? How do you destroy the idol of covetousness? How do you stop worrying about where your next meal is going to come from when you don't have a job? See, these are all impossible commands that Jesus is giving in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, what we discover in the Christian life is what was impossible for man, we are actually experiencing. We're experiencing the supernatural. God is doing it by the power of His Holy Spirit indwelling us. You cannot keep the Sermon on the Mount apart from empowering grace. And these and many other questions were used by Christ, I think, to help people recognize, do you have supernatural in your ministry? Or is it only something that man can do, any pagan could do? And I think it's just not a mark of a faithful church. It is a mark of a faithful family. Do you feed daily upon the Lord Jesus Christ to gain strength for your ministry? Have you lost the joy of the Lord? Uh, these are things we have got to ask ourselves. Faithful ministries have learned to be empowered by God moment by moment. And if you fail on any one of these marks, uh, hey, don't just say, okay, I'm going to try harder. It's not about trying harder. It's about crying out to God. You know, prayer is... Uh, one of the implications of faith, turning to God instead of turning to self. He's the solution. And so you look to Him. Now, point nine, they had also learned how to stand fast. Paul said, to this day I stand. Uh, he stood firm despite opposition from without and within. 
he stood firm despite the incredible discouragements that he talked about in 2 Corinthians. All kinds of discouraging things. And it's so easy to begin well and to finish poorly like Hezekiah did. So easy. You know, Isaiah, uh, he was given the, the charge of preaching, but God warned him up front, hey, Isaiah, nobody's going to listen to you. Very few people are going to be changed by your ministry. And yet, Isaiah stood fast. Jeremiah had the same thing. He, he got all kinds of abuse. He got all kinds of persecution. He stood fast. Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, he had huge crowds. So that was pretty exciting. But as he began to teach the truths of the kingdom, he began offending all kinds of people and everybody was leaving him. And yet he stood fast. And in this passage here, Paul says, to this day I stand. And we need to be able to say the same thing no matter how difficult things might get. You might, for you, it might be um, a difficulty in your marriage. And you might say, oh man, I just want out. You've got to stand fast to have a faithful ministry. I think of Wilberforce, who per persevered in his fight against the slave trade. And oh, he, it's just amazing the perseverance that he had to uh, engage in. But one night in the early 1790s, after yet another defeat in uh, ten, 10 years of battle, he was tired and he was frustrated and wondering if this was worth it all. He was leafing through his Bible and a sheet of paper fell out and fluttered to the ground. But he picked it up and it turned out to be a letter that had been sent to him by John Wesley shortly before he died. Here's what it said. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of His might. And that's what I would say to each one of you in your uh, ministries. But I especially think that first sentence is important. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise. See, standing fast is one of the marks of a faithful ministry that God Himself has called. And under times of persecution, there's going to be a lot of rice Christians, a lot of rice ministries that are just going to fall away or compromise or just come under the total authority of the world. A tenth mark is a willingness to reach out to both small and great. Paul characterized his ministry as witnessing both to small and great. And last week we spent a lot of time on this, so I'm just going to skip this point. Uh, but where the life of God is, it should reproduce life. Okay, the eleventh mark of a faithful ministry is a willingness to implement the Old Testament. Look at the last phrase in verse 22. Saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. What was the Bible that Paul used? It wasn't the New Testament. For the first seven years of Paul's ministry, and this would actually have been for the first ten and a half years of the church's ministry after the resurrection, the only Bible that they had was the Old Testament. All of the kingdom realities, all of the New Testament realities they were teaching, they were teaching from the Old Testament. In fact, in Acts 17, remember Paul said that he praised the Bereans for 
checking everything he set out by the Old Testament Scriptures. There wasn't anything Paul taught that could not be checked out by the Old Testament Scriptures. It would be another five years before the second and third New Testament books were written. It would be another four years before Galatians was written. This means that at the most, Paul only had four New Testament books to work with in the first 16 years of his ministry. And actually the first seven years, he didn't have any New Testament books. So to speak of a New Testament Christianity is absolutely ludicrous. Paul knew nothing of that. In this verse, Paul says, even after the majority of the New Testament books had been written, on my chronology anyway, the majority have been written by this time, he wasn't teaching anything new that wasn't already in the Old Testament. And so the question might come, well, why even bother to have a New Testament? Well, there is, a, just like the prophets in the Old Testament, there was prophetic um, writing against Israel in the book of Revelation. Uh, there is a clarification of Old Testament principles, a convincing statement that the Old Testament prophecies had been fulfilled in Christ. There was a, a, an illustration of how here is one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has perfectly lived out uh, the Old Testament law. See, one rule of Reformation teaching was that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it makes it very clear in two different places that there will never again be any laws given that were not given through Moses. No one was to add any moral laws to the Bible once the first five books of the, the Bible were written, which means that the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament are simply clarifications, applications, applications of the law that was given. The Pentateuch is a complete ethical system. You don't need anything more than the Pentateuch. The rest of the Bible is an application and um, does not add anything to it. Now, some people might say, ah, you're wrong, Phil, because Jesus said a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. But see, the new thing about that is not that you love one another. You can find that in the Old Testament. You can even find the command to love your enemies in the Old Testament. What's new about that commandment is the phrase, as I have loved you. For the first time in human history, there was a person in flesh who perfectly loved, perfectly lived out the law of God. And that's why First John 2, verses 27 and 28, I think it is. Actually, it's not. I wrote it down right here. First John 2, 7 and 8 uh, says, well... There's a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, but it's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment that you had from the beginning. So it's not adding any ethical new dimension, but it is saying we have a, a new pattern in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, he told Timothy that the Old Testament Scriptures that Timothy had been brought up on, so it's clearly Old Testament, was sufficient to make the man of God thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's complete. I've written a book that shows how even baptism is simply a refinement and a carryover of Old Testament baptism. You don't understand Christian baptism if you ignore the Old Testament. So we must not pit the New Testament against the Old Testament the way many ministries do. In chapter 24, verse 14, Paul said, "...believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets." There's a lot of ministries that couldn't say that. "...believing all things which are written in the... Uh, law and in the prophets. In fact, some interpretations of Paul's epistles 
make Paul contradict himself. They, they say, oh, Paul didn't believe, believe all of that. And I think there's a major failing in American ministries and what we need to do is pray that God would remedy that. It's my prayer that churches across this nation would have such a burden to give God God's answers to the the problems that are plaguing America, that they'd start studying the blueprints in the Old Testament. They'd be like Ezra with the wisdom to know how to apply the law to the new circumstances uh, that we, uh, we are facing. And we need to learn how to do that, how to apply the law to individuals, families, churches, culture. Now, we teach the New Testament. We bless God for the New Testament because there's such clarification there. But when we teach the New Testament, we can say what Paul said in verse 22, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Now, there's one last mark of a faithful ministry, and that's being committed to everything that Jesus stood for. Uh, it's committed to a, proclaiming a messianic kingdom worldview. Let me read verse 23. That the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, the Jews found the cross offensive. They wanted a political Messiah, and the cross spoke of such weakness, almost like a defeated Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah who would uh, rescue them from Rome. And so they reject the idea of the cross, but a faithful ministry has to have the cross central to everything it does. Anything that does not flow through the cross is haywood and stubble. Now, on the other hand, the Greeks found the idea of a resurrection offensive. They wanted to escape from the physical world. They despised the physical world. They didn't want their bodies to be resurrected. They want that discarded. But see, Christ's message is quite the opposite. Paul's message is quite the opposite. It's Christ's kingdom invading this very physical planet and transforming it. And the Greeks found that just as offensive as the Jews found the cross offensive. Uh, I like the hymn, Joy to the World. It says that God's grace goes far as the curse is found far as the curse is found. And His work is not going to be done until our bodies are glorified, till this very universe is glorified and made into a new heavens and new earth. By the way, that phrase, the first to rise from the dead, I think that's one that uh, you really need to think about when you're dealing with this whole thing of full preterism. Um, the first to rise from the dead implies two things. It implies that there are others who are going to be raised from the dead. And secondly, it implies they're going to be raised from the dead in the same way that Jesus was raised. So if we ignore either Christ's resurrection, our future resurrection, or say that their two resurrections are different, we've got a problem in terms of this passage. And if the cross answers the problem of everything that Adam lost through the curse... The power of the resurrection answers the question of how it is possible to transform a sin-sick world. See, the light of God's kingdom is invading planet Earth and scattering the darkness. In other words, it is only a supernatural answer that can answer the problems that are in this natural realm. Okay, Nothing less than supernatural light is sufficient. It does involve human action, but I want you to notice that it's primarily through the proclamation of the truth that this is wrought. Paul says, proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. It's a proclaimed answer. It's a worldview answer. We don't need more secular conservative presidents. We don't need uh, more secular conservative congressmen. That's not the answer. 
What is needed is a new mighty proclamation of a comprehensive kingdom worldview that stands as a compelling alternative to the failed plans of the humanists. Now, in conclusion, let me say that until Christians stop borrowing from the experts of this world and they start looking to the God who made all things, we're not going to get very far. Uh, so many people are embarrassed by what they find in the Bible. Even in this city, when I've talked with pastors, I've just been shocked at how many passages of Scripture pastors are offended by or embarrassed by about family, role relationships, women in leadership, economics, civics. There's a whole host of areas that we desperately need a reformation in. Ministries, for example, routinely substitute the band-aid of psychology for the wonderfully life-transforming, spirit-led discipleship that the Bible talks about. Why? Why would we do that? They're routinely looking to the world for business uh, leadership practices and uh, administrative practices and uh, all of this management rather than looking to the way Jesus trained His 12 disciples who in turn trained a few, who in turn trained others and turned the world upside down. You know, why would we think that the world can do better than Jesus? made me laugh when one pastor in Colorado, I won't say his name, uh, who uh, runs a, a mega church, told the uh, m- m- ministry team leader uh, that, I, that I work with that he wanted to go with us to China to talk with the top leaders in China about how to do church growth because he was an expert in church growth. And uh, my leader said, hmm, so which leaders do you want to talk to? Would you like to talk to the leader whose church went from zero to 15 million in 10 years? Or the leader who went from 100 to over a million in about the same amount of time? Or the, the leader who's got hundreds of thousands in churches spread out all over China? And his point was that this guy just wants some podium to stand on to promote his ministry back here. And he told him, you know, China really doesn't need your expertise here. The Spirit's been doing quite well on church growth without you. (laughs) But why is it that we in America are exporting our expert mess out to China and to other countries when we ought to be exporting the wisdom of God that's found in the Scriptures? It just grieves me. It grieves me to... Uh, See this, the modern church has substituted the world's wisdom for the light of Christ's kingdom in so many areas. Feminism, homosexuality, dating, socialism, evangelistic methods, developmental psychology, government schools, government health care, all kinds of things. It's no wonder the humanists dominate in America. We've been asking them to. We've been looking to them for leadership. See, that's the problem. We've abandoned the heavenly vision that Jesus has given to the church. Now, I don't say this to belittle and to tear down other churches. I say this to encourage you as a body to begin praying for the church at large. Pray that these 12 marks would be true of every church in America. Pray these 12 marks into every family in America, to all of the ministries of America. Pray that God would powerfully bring reformation. See, I love the Church of America. I want to see it blessed. But we don't need more ministries. We need more faithful ministries who will be used by God to advance His cause. Amen? Amen. Now, our own church, if we're going to prosper, 
in our desires to plant churches, to evangelize, to do other things, we have desperately got to cling to the Lord Jesus and plead with Him, Lord, keep me from being disobedient to Your heavenly calling. Help me not to drift away in my family. Help our church not to drift away. We need to ask, how do I measure up? I still think we need to grow. We still need to press into our upward calling that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And so here's my admonition. May we persevere in pursuing all 12 marks of a healthy church. Make it so, Lord Jesus. Amen.